Hello, this is message number 18 of the Sermon on the Mount series from Bethel Baptist Church of Oskaloosa. Today, February 16th, 2020, we will look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24 with Pastor Cox. Take your Bibles with me this morning, if you would, and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 uh, in, your, in your Bibles, if you would. As we continue our, our study on the, the Sermon on the Mount, and, and this morning we're, we're going to look and ask the question, where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? And this morning, when, when I prayed together, all of us together, I, I did what I normally do, and I said, you know, Father, take all the stuff that's vying for our attention. And, and it's kind of interesting that... that I didn't even think about that, but this morning, we, we want us to recognize right out the gate that, that we as human beings are naturally stuff-oriented. All God's people said? Yeah, so you're not sure. You're not sure yet, okay? How do you know we are, as a whole, stuff-oriented? Because we got stuff. Everybody's got stuff. We got stuff. We got so much stuff, we build places to put our stuff. And then we got so much stuff that those places don't work anymore, so then we go rent a place to put more stuff. And then we might rent two or three or four places to put our stuff because we got stuff. And, and we're happy with our stuff, right? We, we like our stuff. It's our stuff. And we don't want nobody messing with our stuff. We keep it under lock and key, and, and we don't want anybody messing with it, right? We, we are strongly inclined to wrap ourselves up in seeking and acquiring and enjoying and protecting material possessions. Material possessions is a fancy word for stuff. It is in this prosperous culture such as the one that we live in, that the prosperity to build our lives around stuff is so especially great. The leading religionists of Jesus' day were preoccupied with stuff. They were materialistic, greedy, covetous, grasping, manipulative. The fact that, quote, the Pharisees were lovers of money, unquote, is not incidental to the other sins which Jesus continually rebuked them because they did not have a right view of themselves. They did not have a right view of their relation to the world. They did not have the right view of their relation to the word of God. They did not have a right view of morality. We find all of that in Matthew chapter 5. They also didn't have a right view of religious duties. Find that here in chapter 6. It is inevitable that they would not have a right view of material things. If you've got all that other stuff messed up, there's no way you're going to get material things correct. Here's the truth. False doctrine leads to false standards, false behavior, and false values. That's a simple fact of life. False doctrine leads to those things. Hypocritical religion always seems to be accompanied by greed and immorality. Let me give you an Old Testament example, Hophni and Phinehas. 
How many of you are familiar with that story? Hophni and Phinehas, okay, a few of you. Good. Two sons of Eli, the high priest, had no regard for the things of God, but they eagerly took advantage of their father's exalted office as well as their own priestly positions. They were, quote, worthless men who did not know the Lord, unquote also took advantage of those women that were around the temple of that day. Find all that in 1 Samuel chapter 2. What about a a New Testament example? How about Ananias and Caiaphas? They were the high priests during Jesus' earthly ministry. They became extremely wealthy on the many concessions. Listen, it's the many concessions that they ran or they licensed within, you ready, the temple. They either ran concessions or they licensed them in the temple. It was those concessions that Jesus cleansed by flipping over the table and driving out the money changers from his father's house. Throughout history, throughout the history of the church, even to the present day, religious charlatans have used the ministry as a means to garner wealth and to provide opportunity to indulge in all kinds of lustful behavior. Such people like the scribes and the Pharisees have used their material prosperity, their stuff, if you will, as imagined evidence of their spirituality, proclaiming without shame that they are materially blessed because they are superiorly They are spiritually superior. Listen, to claim God's approval on simply on the basis of one's wealth, health, prestige, or any other such thing is to pervert God's word, to use his name in vain. And I'm even going to throw on to the end of this as I was reading through my notes again this morning. It even look at the the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It says, not good enough. claim God's approval on our lives on the basis of stuff. He who dies with the most stuff wins, right? He who dies with the most stuff still dies and stands before the eternal judge. Here's our big idea this morning. Every believer must find their true treasure their ultimate satisfaction in God above all else. You want to know if you're, you're, you're tied to your stuff? Let me ask you this. If you lost everything, I mean everything, could you still love Jesus? Could you still serve him? Could you still praise his name? You know what? It's easy sometimes to sit in a, in a, in a church and say, yeah, I could, I could do that, because you haven't lost all your stuff. You're not empty-handed. Could we really do that? In the present passage we want to look at this morning, Jesus looks at our relationship, if you will, to stuff or to material from three perspectives. Perspective of treasure, perspective of vision, and perspective of the master. And we need to... Uh, take a look at those this morning. We're going to begin with a single treasure. 
verses 19 through 21. Look what scripture says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I want you to understand as we begin this this morning that, that the idea here, the words lay up and treasure come from the same basic Greek term which is also used in, as the source of our English thesaurus, a treasury of words. A literal translation, translation of the phrase would therefore be rendered like this, do not treasure up treasures for yourself. The Greek also carries the idea of stocking up or laying out horizontally as one might stack coins. In the context of the passage, the idea here is that of stockpiling or hoarding stuff. Therefore, wealth, it pictures wealth, is not being used. Just, just stockpile, just, just hung on to. The money or other wealth is simply stored for the keeping. It is kept for the, the keeping's sake to make a show of wealth or to create an environment of lazy overindulgement. So we recognize then, it's clear from this passage as well as many others in Scripture, that Jesus is not advocating poverty as a means to spirituality. That is not what Jesus is after here. Both the Old and New Testament recognize the right to material possessions, stuff, including money, land, animals, house, clothes, and every other thing that might be honestly acquired. God has made these promises from the material blessings to those who uh, belong to and are faithful to him. However, in the midst of all of that, God expects, in fact, I believe God commands his people to be generous. He also expects and even commands them to uh, not not only to be thankful for, but to enjoy the blessings he gives, including material blessings. It is right. It is right to provide for our families, to make reasonable plans for the future, to make wise investments, to have money, to carry on uh, business, to give to the poor, to support the Lord's work. Uh, it is being dishonest, greedy, covetous, stingy, stingy, and miserly about our possessions that is wrong. To be honest, to honestly earn, save, and give is wise and good. To hoard, spend only on ourselves is unwise, not only unwise, but I, I will state this morning, I believe it's sinful from the scriptures. The key to Jesus' warning here is the word yourselves. Do not lay up treasures for yourselves. When we accumulate possessions for only our own sake, whether to hoard or to spend selfishly and extravagantly, those possessions may very well become idols. And it's possible that both our treasures upon the earth and our treasures in heaven can involve money and material things, possessions that are wisely and lovingly and willingly and generously used for kingdom purposes can be a means of accumulating heavenly possessions. When they are hoarded and stored, however, they not only become spiritual hindrances, but they are subject to loss through moth, rust, and thieves. You see, in the ancient times, wealth was frequently measured in part by clothing. How much clothes you had determined how rich you were. And by the way, 
I'm just going to guess. If your house is anything like my house, man, we we filthy rich when it comes to clothing. Amen? You're not really going to get on board yet, are you? Okay. I got that. It's all right. Listen, the best clothes back in, in that day were made of wool, which moths love to eat. How many went to grandma's house and you'd open that closet and it smelled like mothballs? Remember that? Okay. I'm the only one. Right, a few of you are nodding. Nobody will raise their hand. Oh, I forgot. We're Baptist. All right. Um, wealth was often held not only in clothing, but in grain. And the word rust literally means something being eaten up. It seems to best be taken in the same reference to grain that is eaten by rats and mice and worms and insects. Almost any kind of wealth we know all too well is subject to thieves, which is why many people would bury their non-perishable valuables in the ground away from the house, often out in the field. The word translated break, as in break in and steal, uh, literally here means to dig through. It could be referred to dig through the mud walls of a house or digging up the dirt in the field. So all of that put together, here's the reality check. Nothing we own is completely safe from destruction or theft. Amen? I have a very dear friend who worked for a major company, and if I said the name, you would all groan, worked for a major company and, and had literally seven or eight-figure retirement set up. Six years before he retired, somebody in that company went in and did, I, I don't know all the details, but the money's gone. They went from an eight-figure retirement to zero. Nothing on this earth is safe. We need to understand that. And even if we keep our possessions perfectly secure during our entire lives, we're separated from them at death. Have you read Ecclesiastes? When, 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 when the writer, who I believe is Solomon, says, I gathered all this stuff, I got all my stuff, and I got all my, and then I died and somebody else gets my stuff. Welcome to an estate sale. Right? You worked so hard to get all this stuff. You've hoarded it. You've held on to it. You're not going to, don't touch my stuff. And then you die. And then I get your stuff anyway. And then I hang on to it. Do you see the vicious circle here? Do you see this? As always, listen, the bottom line to all of this, it's about a heart attitude. The heart must be right before the Lord. In fact, if the heart is right, everything else in life falls into its proper place. The person who is right with the Lord will be generous and happy and is giving to the Lord's work by the same token the person who is covetous and self-indulgent and stingy has good reason to question his relationship with the Lord. If you're, you're covetous and stingy and, and you don't want nobody touching your stuff and you don't want to share your stuff and it's your stuff and I got it myself and you really going to claim that you know the Lord is your Savior? that you've given all to him? Jesus is not saying that if we put our treasure in the right place, our heart will be in the right place, but he's saying the location of our treasure indicates where our heart already is. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. 
it tells on us. Spiritual problems are always heart problems. Sinful acts come from sinful heart, just as righteous acts come from a righteous heart. That's our stuff. Let's talk about our vision. Verses 22 and 23. Notice what it says here. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? God has a sense of humor in having me preach about eyesight. Second perspective in these verses expands on the illustration that we just looked at. The eye becomes the illustration for the heart. The lamp or the lens of the body is the eye through which all light comes to us. It is the only channel of light we possess, and therefore it's our only means of true spiritual vision. The heart is the eye to the soul through which the illumination of every spiritual experience shines. It is through our heart that God's truth, his love, his peace, every other spiritual blessing comes to us. So when our hearts, our spiritual eyes are clear, our whole body will be full of light. The Greek word used here that is translated clear can also mean single, as it is in the King James Version. The eye that is clear represents a heart that has a single-minded devotion. Our heart's not torn between our stuff and God. Words that are closely related to the Greek word here translated clear mean liberality generosity. The implication in the present verse is that if our heart, represented by the eye, is generous, clear, our whole spiritual life will be flooded with spiritual understanding or light. However, if our eye is bad, if it is diseased or damaged, no light can enter in it. The whole body will be full of darkness. If our hearts are encumbered with material concerns, material stuff, they become blind and insensitive to spiritual concerns. The eye, like a window, when it is clear, allows light to shine through, but when dirty or, or bad, it prevents light from entering. The word translated in this couple of verses as bad usually means evil. It's often uh, used translating the Hebrew expression of an evil eye, a Jewish colloquialism that, that means grudging, stingy, or selfish. The eye that is bad is the heart that is selfishly indulgent. The person who is materialistic and greedy is spiritually blind. If you're more concerned about your stuff than others, the truth is you're materially or, or spiritually blind because you have no way of recognizing true light. And sometimes what we think is light is not. What is thought to be light, therefore, is really darkness. And because of our own self-deception, how great is that darkness? As I see it, the principle is simple. And sobering. 
The way we look at it, the way we use our money, our stuff, our treasures, is a sure barometer of our spiritual condition. Where's your standing with the Lord? You know, I've heard a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of preachers will say, you know, you want to know where your, where, what your attitude about money is? Look at your checkbook. Well, we don't even use checkbooks anymore, hardly. Okay? But look at your accounts. Look at where your money goes. Look at where your treasures are. That's where your heart is. That tells us where our heart is. So we have our treasure. We've looked at our vision. And I just want to touch briefly on a single master. A single master. Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Or as I think Ronnie, the version he read out of this morning, said God and wealth. You can't serve two masters. Can't be done. This third perspective relates to allegiance to masters in our lives. Just as we cannot have our treasures both on earth and in heaven or in our bodies both in light and darkness together, we cannot serve two masters. That's interesting here because the word master is often translated as Lord and it refers to a slave owner. The idea here is not simply of that of an employer of which a person might have several at the same time and work for each of those employers in a satisfactory manner. We're not talking about employer. We're talking about slave owners. And by definition, a slave owner has total control over the slave. For a slave, there is no such thing as partial or part-time obligation to their master. The master owns the slave's full-time service to a full-time master that is 24-7, 365, no breaks, no timeouts, no time off. That is what we're talking about here. The slave is owned totally owned and totally controlled and by so is obligated to his master. He has nothing left for anyone else. To give anything to anyone else would make his master less of a master. You understand that? In order for the slave owner to be the slave owner, the master to be the master, he has to be all that at once. If the slave has divided loyalties, then he is not truly the master. You seeing where this is going yet? Somebody nod your head one way or the other, okay? Over and over in the New Testament, it speaks of Jesus Christ being our Lord and master. And as Christians, being his bond slave. Paul tells us that before we were saved, we were enslaved to sin, that sin was our master, but when we trusted Christ, we became slaves of God, slaves of righteousness. We find that in Romans chapter 6. 
Therefore, we cannot claim Christ as our Lord if our allegiance is to anything else, anyone else, including our own selves. When we know God's will, but we resist obeying it, we give evidence that our loyalty is other to him. Okay, I want to say that again because I don't want us to miss that. When we know God's will, something clearly stated that, that, that God wants us to do, and we don't do that, we are showing that we have an allegiance somewhere else. Because the slave would never, never disobey his master. True? True. We can no more serve two masters at the same time than we can walk in two directions at the same time. We will either hate the one and love the other or hold to one and despise the other. The orders of the two masters. Just this morning, think about this. The Lord as our master, Jesus as our master, or me, us, ourselves. We call the shots. I want you to listen to the diametrically opposed and facts that cannot, cannot coexist. The one commands us to walk by faith. The other demands that we walk by sight. One calls us to be humble. The other calls us to be proud. One sets our mind on things above. Calls us to set our mind on things above. The other calls us to set our expectations, our minds, our evaluations on things below. One calls us to love. Calls us to love the light. The other calls us to love the darkness. One tells us to look toward the unseen things and the eternal things, and the other says to look at the things that you can see and the things that are temporary. Do you see how these two things are diametrically opposed? You can't say, I kind of love Jesus and I kind of love me. You're, you're one or the other. You cannot serve two masters. Cannot be done. How many of you have ever been at work and had two supervisors telling you what to do? Oh, there's a party in a box, right? You, you, you just go in circles. Somebody has to be in charge. You have to Give your allegiance to either yourself or to God. And Jesus is saying here, you can't serve two masters. It, it is impossible to be the slave of two different masters at the same time. The person whose master is Jesus Christ, can say that when he eats or drinks or anything else that he does, he does all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. 
in everything that I do, I want to bring glory to God. Therefore, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the command. So if we're doing anything that is not bringing glory to God, we are disregarding His mastery over us. I'll even, I'll even use the L word, His lordship in our life. The one who does all to the glory of God says with David in Psalm 16, verse 8, I have set the Lord continually before me. As we think about our stuff, as we think about how we see the world around us and our attitude toward material blessings, it really shows us where our heart is and to whom we are giving ultimate allegiance to. May we always desire to give God glory in everything that we do. And like David, may we say, I have set the Lord continually before me. May that be the cry of our hearts. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to have opened your word. We ask, God, that you would help us. We're, <coughs> we're, not, the, we're not the best at evaluating ourselves sometimes. Father, sometimes you lead people into our lives to give us a wake-up call, to encourage us to look hard at who we are and what we are doing. Father, this morning, use your word in our lives. Father, what's my attitude? What's our attitude towards stuff? How's my vision this morning? Are my eyes clear, Father? Am I receiving spiritual truth, driving out the darkness in my life? Or am I preferring the darkness? And Father, with my lips, it's quite easy to call you Lord and to confess that even publicly, that, that Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. And yet, Father, quite often, by the way that I live and the way that I act and the way that I react... Quite often, I and we show that that is not truth. Father God, this morning, would you examine our hearts? Would you help us to honestly evaluate our relationship with you this morning? And above all else, Father, in the midst of that, as hard as that might be for, for us to do, and for you to, to work in our lives in that way and, and, and to help us. Father, may we glorify you. May we desire to change, to obey you, because we are your bondservants. You are our master. We love you this morning, Father. Help us. Help us to live better for you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.